Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by like Dairy Lane Dental. Bank. Keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. As an indigenous woman, to be able to come into your homes and share with you a way of knowing, being, and a new way of doing. To put actions into words and to really mean it. Well, thank you. Yes, I am a little brown Mohawk girl with a microphone. So look out as we get ready to move forward, as we unravel, untangle, demolish, and dismantle some of the very difficult issues of the past. We won't change them, but we're going to take a look at them. And believe me, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to try. And together we can create a new story, a new narrative. The word Mohawk actually means fierce people. So join with me as we have generations upon generations to sift through. Today, we're going to take a look at what does it mean to be uncolonized? And what is the difference between uncolonization and decolonization? D is actually a Latin and Latin and means away from or out of. Decolonize means to come out of or away. So to me, it's like asking, almost like asking a soldier to forget about the trauma of war that he or she faced or to unlearn it. Well, as human beings, we can't do that. We are wired to learn patterns of behavior, of thought. And what we can do is then replace those learned patterns with new behavior and new thinking. Uncolonize is the process of detaching and disconnecting from the remnants of colonization. So let's begin the journey of uncolonizing together. And this means to discover a new way, a new way of thinking and a new mindset and a new way of doing together. It's not unusual that conversations always come back to the land. And why? Well, it all started with the land our sacred connection of Indigenous people to the land, a bond, a relationship that we know was severed, that strong connection. Our connection to the land is a DNA connection. We are part of the land and the land is in us. It's an important nugget of information for you to digest and think about. All that we are provided here on this earth, Mother Earth, Turtle Island, the water, the air, the sun, the moon, is not ours, but as guests, we live here and are provided for and get these gifts from the earth. Having traditionally Indigenous people been hunters and uh, hunter and gatherer society, uh, we lived and were sustained by Mother Earth, and we still are. But somehow I think human beings in general have forgotten that we are guests here on this earth. My ancestors lived by oaths and spiritual principles that were embedded in the land and the rights of the of the land. Some of those principles were that you only take what you need. And when you took, you gave thanks. You gave back to the land and you respected it and honored it. 
And another principle is that the land is not our property. We do not own the earth. To me, this relationship is based on, if you can understand, similarly to a parent to a child, a mother to her child, that interconnectedness of unconditional love, humility, trust, respect. And I also see this relationship as the basis of community. A community shares, gives, and gives without expectation, helps one another, and values the other more than self. And that's what the basis of the relationship of Indigenous people is to the land. That's how I equate it for you. So the arrival of the Europeans brought with it the Eurocentric mindset, a mindset of white superiority and basically a colonial power who arrived to see the land and its inhabitants as the savage Indian, not speaking a European language, not dressing like Europeans, Europeans not doing what they did, but living on a vast land base that spoke to the settler and spoke to their greed and need. So when we look at the old history books and it says the Europeans or the settlers cleared the land, they cleared the land of the people as well, of its inhabitants. So there begins the process of assimilation and elimination, the process of dehumanization. This leads us to a conversation about treaties. What are treaties? And I know all of these words are buzzwords lately. Let's take a look at them. Let's understand them. So what are treaties? Treaties were essentially promises. Promises, these promises began as oral, oral agreements between First Nations and the European settlers who arrived. This led to paper agreements. Of course, we know that First Nations did not write in books. We are a form of tradition and communication was oral. Often these blank statements or contracts were torn apart by the settlers after an agreement was made, after the promise was made, and they saw the land for theirs as the taking. And the people or Indians that live there, the inhabitants, as disposable. It was that colonial mindset. Our, our way of life and our holistic connection to the land was then severed. We had communities and societies that was disregarded by the settlers. We had societies that were economic, social, and of political stability. The two-row wampum of the Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois, my people, is an excellent example of one of the original treaties between European settlers and indigenous people of, of this land. There are two lines, if you take a look and research it, two lines that signify rivers or water. The one line is the canoe of the indigenous people and in their, in their boat. The other line is the European line in their ship. We were, it was a promise and a treaty to live together in peace, 
harmony, and friendship. I'll give you a really good example of a traditional territory and how that traditional territory has been eroded. I grew up on the Six Nations Reserve, which is the uh, called the Six Nations of the Grand. And we had a, pro- a piece of property that was given to us called the Haldeman Tract. And this Haldeman Tract was 12 miles on either side of the Grand River from its mouth to its source. And with that, let's take a break. This is 88.7. You're tuned to Hunter's Bay Radio. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. about a promise and making a promises. There uh, was this white guy <laughs> living down the roadways and I asked, I said, hey, I see he's got this little truck and a sign on it that says for sale. Oh, well, I think I might want to buy it. Heck, the only problem I see is that I don't trust him. Heck, he's white. I don't even know, really, if that rig is his or not. Heck, maybe he took it. I see his kids running around. Hey, (laughs) running around like wild white kids. Heck, I tell you a story. I heard that maybe they speak a white language and they wear white clothes and and you know I heard that they even went to a a government white residential school (laughs) hey heck you never know you never you never know Welcome back to On Mohawk Time. I am your host, Joyce Jonathan Crone. And here is your Mohawk Minute. The Mohawk language is a very complex language. I lost that language as I am a second generation residential school survivor. My grandfather attended the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario. Here, is your Mohawk Minute. That word in Mohawk means turtle. It is 19 letters long. The turtle is one of the clans of the Haudenosaunee. Many or most First Nations uh, nations in this country, use animals to represent their clans. Clans are representing the land, air, and water. There are over 630 First Nations communities in Canada, many with their own languages and traditions. I'll give you a great example. The Six Nations, where I grew up, 
is actually composed of six nations, the Mohawk, the Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, Onondaga, and the last to join were the Tuscarora. My mom is was Mohawk and my dad was Tuscarora. The Tuscaroras actually uh, moved north out of the South Carolinas and crossed the border and asked the five nations of the six, of the five nations at that time, now there's six, um, if they could join. And the five nations welcomed them and they joined and that's what created the six nations. Now, if we take a look at some of the other nations of this country, as I mentioned, there are over 630 communities, that if we look west, there are many different nations. Salish is one. Musqueam is another in BC. In the north, we have Cree, the Cree nation. In the east, we have the Mi'kmaq, or what was known as the Mi'kmaq. So we do have many, many nations across this country. In the second half of the program, whoopsie, turtle, we're going to tackle the controversial subject of the Indian Act. The Indian Act of 1867 is very controversial, and it was created by the federal government to control what was called the Indian problem. Now, I may get a little bit sidetracked as there are many, many layers of the Indian Act. If we take a look at the past, we're, I'm setting you up for the cause and effect. And the effect is what we're going to take a look at in some future shows. Right now, we're still taking a look at some of the causes of what happened in this country. The whole idea of the Indian Act was to assimilate and eliminate. It was a, a paternalistic legislation. And what does that mean? It was based on the, what the government saw as the father's side. That's paternalistic. However, the indigenous communities, our original origins were maternalistic, based on the mother. So, for example, the clans that I mentioned were based on the mother's lineage, not the father's. So when the government came in place, they then decided that First Nations people would follow the paternalistic way. And therefore, the Indian Act is paternalistic. Now, what's important to know and understand about this act? As, as I said, it's controversial and it's in-depth. And after 156 years, it still exists as federal law in this country. It imposes approximately 200 additional rules and regulations to Indigenous people. The Indian Act holds Indigenous people under the power and authority of the federal government. Now, here's what can happen in Canada is there can be controversy between who is in charge, the federal government or the provincial government, who is um, following through on this policy and this law. Is it the federal government or the provincial government? And we have seen that in education and health. We've seen that in Jordan's principle, where a, a, a young free boy 
never made it home and died in hospital because of that controversy with the two levels, levels of government. The other piece of legislation that is involved is what is called the Doctrine of Discovery. What that is, it's the formal statements, papal bulls from the, from the Pope, and it disables an Indigenous sovereignty and the rights to self-determination. It originated in the 1400s and was actually used as legal and moral justification to depose a colonial dispossession of the sovereign nations of this country uh, and what was and is Canada. And in 2018, the Assembly of First Nations, uh, they actually uh, published a document called Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. During the European Age of Discovery, the Christian explorers that came claimed the land for their monarch who felt that they could exploit the land regardless of the original inhabitants. And this was basically um, invalid based on uh, pre-assumed racial superiority of, of the European Christians that came. And again, it was essentially used to dehumanize and exploit the indigenous people and to dispose us of our basic human rights. And this was the very foundation of genocide. And so there is a call to dispose of the doctrine of discovery. And you may have heard that when the Pope um, visited and also during the time that he said, I'm sorry. Um, I would just like to read to you a quote um, by one of the national chiefs. Advancing reconciliation requires bringing Canadian law and policy into line with international human rights law, which has condemned doctrines of superiority, including the doctrine of discovery, era nullius, as colonial and racist. Yet the racist assumptions and impacts of these doctrines live on in aspects of Canadian law and policy. They are evident in underlying assumptions that assume First Nations claimants in our own lands and, and that treat First Nations as somehow lacking sovereignty. The assumptions and impacts of these racist doctrines must be uprooted. The path forward will require Canada to acknowledge the truth of pre-existing and continuing sovereignty as self-determining peoples, end of quote. The Assembly of First Nations describes the Indian Act as a form of apartheid. In also, let's fast forward a little to, in 1869, the federal government established what was called the Gradual Enfranchment sorry, in Enfranchisement Act. And that was to further assimilate the First Nations into the settler uh, society. And so this gave the superintendent of what was called at the time Indian Affairs extreme control over status Indians. And that's different. We talked about that before versus non-status. And so status are those who have documentation and are documented by the government. 
So it gave the power to the um, general superintendent of Indian Affairs to determine who was of good moral character. An example of this is a woman who died. Whose an example of this is a woman whose husband died, and it would be the decision decision of the government if the children were to be taken from the mother. And this act gave the government control over a band and treaty benefit and also severely marginalized Indigenous women. For example, an Indigenous woman who married a non-Indigenous man lost her status. She could not live on the reserve. She lost all of her rights and she could not even be buried with her family. So we know that in the 1980s, Bill C-31 was amended uh, only after the United Nations stepped in to say that this discriminated against women under the Canadian Constitution. And with that, I would say, Nyawa for listening and joining me on this continued journey to a new way of knowing and being and doing. This is 88.7 Hunter's Bay Radio.